0: I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 91 of Caropop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. My live Karo Pop conversation with the multi-talented two-time Oscar nominee Michael Shannon takes place July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to Evanstonspace.com for tickets and information. Our Caropop guest this week is someone whose voice and band were, and still are, big, Mike Peters of The Alarm. In the 1980s, this Welsh group was big, as in popular, but it was also big in its sound. There's a reason the alarm was opening for Queen Bob Dylan and their friends U2 in arenas and stadiums. powerhouse voice belting out anthemic songs such as 68 guns the stand and spirit of 76 the alarm could arouse an audience no matter the size now peters has a new alarm album forwards and he still has a way with memorable hooks killer riffs and sing-along choruses. But instead of looking outward, Peters is finding the universal in intensely personal experiences. Since 1995, he has been fighting cancer, diagnosed as leukemia in 2005. He came back with a vengeance recently, and much of Forwards was written during a harrowing time Peter spent in the hospital battling pneumonia, getting cancer treatments, and wondering whether he'd survive each night. As he says here, I was creating my own little soundtrack of hope to lead me out of the darkness. I met Peters in May in Los Angeles at the Wild Honey Foundation's Nuggets concert, hosted by previous carol pop guest Lenny Kay. Peters and MC5 guitarist Wayne Kramer turned in a ripping performance of the Amboy Dukes version of Baby Please Don't Go. Peters sounded as strong as ever. For this conversation, Peters was backstage at the London venue where he was performing that night. At some point, he had to run off to do sound checks, so he resumed the conversation a couple days later. Peters talks here about growing up in Wales and the concert that changed his life. We hear about an early band called Harry Hippie and another called The Toilets. Get away with band names. If not for the existence of Duran Duran and Talk Talk, the alarm might have had a different name. How do songs come to Peters? How did Crossing a Border with Bob Dylan inspire one song? How did the songwriting partnership with bandmate Eddie McDonald change over the years? Why did kidnapping a journalist to make him see an alarm show turn out to be a bad idea? I love to feel great in the did he expect rain in the summertime and sold me down the river to become the Alarm's biggest American hits? What was the bond between the Alarm and you two? Were comparisons between those bands too easy? How was Peters able to write his new album under such horrific conditions? In what way was he able to view cancer so he could move forwards? How much does he get out of performing now? Mike Peters is as positive and inspiring in conversation as he is in song. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Mike Peters. Ah!
1: I'm in London at Union Chapel in Islington, yeah fantastic venue uh it's gonna be amazing tonight full band no it's uh the alarm acoustic myself my all my drums and guitars and stuff that makes a
0: big noise. It's like a band gig, but it's one guy <laughs> it's, it's different well, it's good that the guy's you though, you know if it was some other guy doing it, you'd be like well, I'm not, <laughs> sure, I'm not sure about movie. it, yeah. <laughs> well i loved your uh, performance at the nuggets show in la doing baby please don't go with wayne, wayne kramer that sounded fantastic
1: yeah it was it was a great moment yeah it was, uh, i almost forgot to sing at times just so enamored with wayne's guitar playing it was incredible and uh, just getting swept along by the band it was uh, and a great audience and uh yeah it was, it was really nice to be able to play in california again and sing such a fantastic song so did they choose that for you or was that your choice no, they chose that for me. I, I I was quite a late addition to it. I think uh, it, it seemed to be a little bit of an IRS records reunion backstage. There was a lot of connections back to the old label that the Alarm were part of uh, with REM, et cetera. And uh, it was great seeing, you know, Peter Burke. And, and there was also old PR guys from the label like Carrie Baker, who'd worked for IRS records and uh, and so yeah I, I got the invite through those uh the old irs connection and uh and, and then they said what do you want me to do and they said can you sing baby please don't go and i went yeah okay <laughs> and i was in
0: but were you yeah. a fan of that era of stuff and that you know van morrison yeah and- some some of it yeah definitely because
1: uh I, I like the you know the amboy dukes version as well uh, that's that's the one i was uh i sort of heard first and well, i well that's realized. that's
0: the nuggets version so there you go yeah
1: and then I realised them had done it in the sixties. But yeah, when, when when Nuggets came out, there wasn't a lot of garage music around at the time. And you know, look at the time when when punk rock was was starting to become something. And uh, you know, I, I got in early. I saw the Sex Pistols in '76 in in Chester in in the north of England. And I used to go to a club in Manchester called Pips, and it had a, a room there. I scored from about seventy-five, and it was a room called the Roxy Room, and it was the only place probably in Britain that you go on a Saturday night and you could hear the New York Dolls and the Stooges and lots of David Bowie and Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. It was, and there was loads of uh, audience members who were dressed like David Bowie in all the various eras, and it was uh, an amazing place to go. And uh, that's where the sort of punk grapevine started up in those kind of circles. And there wasn't a lot of music. You know, you you would be in, in Pips and you'd hear something from Nuggets because people didn't have a lot of stuff. There was nothing to buy, you know, in 1970s, only the the New York Dolls and the Stooges records and and some of the early Bowie ones. And that, that was that was all, you know, and that's why reggae became such a thing with early punk rock gigs because there was no records to play that had outsider status like we all aspired to as early punks. And Nuggets was one of those records that, It had that cool factor because it was garage rock and uh, we could kind of relate to it without having a soundtrack of our own at the
0: time. Growing up in Wales, do you end up with a different set of kind of musical sort of exposures and influences than if you'd grown up in, you know, England, London, something like that?
1: Yeah, look, it was a small town. You know, I'd I'd say where I grew up in, really, it's like the, you know, Asbury Park or somewhere in in that sort of, there's a seaside town with lots of, bands playing but they were all cover bands bar bands doing doing the show bars and the holiday camps and and the the nightclubs it wasn't a place where serious bands came to play so when 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 i saw the sex pistols it was a total revelation because they they played i I had to cross the border and go and see them in england but it was still in in a in a venue that where i was used to go and see 70s bands playing at the time you know and they all sung about goblins and you know mordor and and the guitar solos lasted 30 minutes and and it was uh, people were, were there to be impressed by their musicianship that was that seemed to be the thing and then the sex pistols came on and reminded everybody in a forcible way that it's about the song It's about the lyrics they brought it back to those basics you know they the one of the song i can remember playing the first time was substitute by the who and i knew substitute but i knew it from who live at leeds and it lasts about half an hour and it's got a 20 minute blues guitar solo in the middle of it whereas the the pistols played it like it was a two minute single like it was originally released and they brought it back to those basics, and and they really could play at, the, at that time in 1976. They were as tight as could be, right? You know, I, I really loved Glenn Matlock when I first saw him. Thought he, I could tell he was a songwriter. That's that was what I was into songwriters, and uh, I could work out that he was the real deal. But the, in North Wales, when you had a spark of any imagination, unlike those bands like the Pistols or even the Beatles earlier than that, you know, they they had to sort of Sven Garlies in, in their vicinity that could help shape them. And like the Pistols have Malcolm McLaren who knew about the New York Dolls, he'd managed them. He, he could put that knowledge into the group. You know, they, they, he, he probably turned them onto the Stooges records. Well, that's Bernie Rhodes probably did. That's why they got to play No Fun live. And, and I knew that record from being at the Pips Club in Manchester. And, uh, but when I grew up in real, there was no one, you know, you just had yourself. And so when we started a band punk band of our own, the toilets, we were really good, but we didn't know how to direct it. We didn't know how to shape it. And, and, uh, so we made all the mistakes going under the sun. And then we realized eventually when we started it as the alarm and we reinvented ourselves, that we had to take it to London so we could find more energy to plug into. And, and, and we could find people who would, Want to come and see the band and keep coming to see the band and uh not
0: just see us as local people with guitars. Right. Yeah, that's that's kind of your your learning curve for just about any band is you, you're finding your sound and finding your identity and learning to sound better and everything. And then you had some amazing band names, like so you formed the toilets after uh after seeing the Sex Pistols. And before that, I saw that you had a band in school when you were in school named Harry Hippie.
1: So- <laughs> yeah, that was one gig only. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, that was the local DJ christened. We did, We had no name. It was at my sister's birthday party, her 21st birthday party. And uh, he christened us Harry Hippie um, j- just there and then. So uh, we thought, okay, <laughs> it wasn't a permanent thing.
0: So, and then after the toilets, I saw some reference to something called Quasimodo uh, that you were in with Carl Wallinger, who later was in oh, the Waterboys and World
1: Party. Yeah, that- that wasn't me. It was uh, the future members of The Alarm, Nigel, the drummer and Dave, the guitarist, were in Quasimodo. Oh, that wasn't you. OK, all right. They were part of our scene. You know, we saw, we saw their gigs. I used to idolize them when I was growing up. I used to go and sit outside their rehearsal room, dreaming of being able to play in a band half as good as Quasimodo. And they let me into the room one day, Carl Bollinger, and Nigel and Dave. And I had to explain what punk rock was to them. And I tried to show them. And I, 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 all, all I knew how to do was a bit of Vicious by Lou Reed. And I <laughs> could do two of the chords, but not the third one. And they kind of laughed me out of the room. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I was starting to make a mark at that time and uh, be a bit of a character. And uh, ultimately, that, those connections ultimately led those two guys to coming into my sphere and becoming part of the alarm.
0: So, and the alarm originally was Alarm, Alarm? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Which was named after a song by... Me. Oh, so you had a song called Alarm Alarm.
1: Yeah, it was a toilet song. And then, so we took that as the name of the band and we wrote to John Peel to tell him that we were changing our name. And he actually read it out on air and he said, oh, the alarm, because there's a few of these uh, double barrel bands, Alarm Alarm, there's Duran Duran, there's Talk Talk. I'm thinking of changing my name to John Peel, John Peel. And I said to the lads, we call The Alarm from now on, okay? <laughs>
0: well, The Alarm's such a good name, you know, it's like sort of like, oh yeah, we fell into that, but... Uh, it's, yeah, uh- but
1: we, we when we, we, you know, like a lot of bands from Britain had to become like The Verve UK or The Mission UK or right. The English Beat. You know, that almost happened. The alarm, there was a country and Western band called the alarm and we had to, um, make contact with them and, and, and buy the rights of the, you know, it wasn't expect, they were only a, a bar band, I think, or something like that, but they were around in 1983 when we were coming to America for the first time. And So we, we asked them if they, we just could be the alarm worldwide and then they agreed and, uh. They very nicely gave us the name completely for the the planet at what point did you start writing songs well it's probably about 1976 and um and uh, i you know i'd seen the sex pistols and i thought how do you write songs you know and uh and i i didn't really know I, you know i i sort of became aware of it when i, went, I bought my first album which is an album called slade alive and uh, well, I went to buy that album in the 70s and uh, and and when I got to the record shop, I flipped it over and I could see what songs were on the back and the, there was some by, in brackets, Slade and then there was one at the end, in brackets, Steppenwolf, Born to Be Wild. I thought, well, I don't want a record by them. I've never heard of them. So I, I bought David Bowie's Aladdin Insane instead because I thought, well, that's going to have all David Bowie's music on it. And when I got home, it, it had a cover, well, I didn't know it at the time, but they he sang a song called Let's Spend the Night Together and I, I saw on the inner notes on the sleeve that it said in brackets, Jack and Richard's well, they're the Rolling Stones. So bands do cover versions. Okay, I get it now. So And they credit the songwriters in these brackets. So I always wanted to be one of those guys in the brackets. That was my ambition as a startup. And uh, so I guess you could say it all started then. But um, I just, one night coming home from, I was working at a bar in Rill in 1977 and i was thinking how would you write a song and i just thought well i can sing my favorite songs in my imagination i can sing anarchy in the uk and i can hear it in all its glory in here so i'm gonna make up my own song you know nothing to do down and out of it and i just imagined it and uh, got home and
0: used the guitar as a midwife to get it out of here into the real world and that's how it all started so you're sort of transcribing it with the guitar once you already figured it out in your head Yeah, that's it. That's what I do. Yeah.
1: I don't sit down and write a song. I don't know if I can do that. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not, I'm not musically trained or anything. I don't know what chord follows the next chord. I just uh, create ideas and soundscapes in my mind. And then, well, what's that? What note is that? Find a note on the fretboard and think, okay, that's an A. It's got to be an A chord. Okay. What's the next one? And I just go from there and work it all out. You still write that way so many years later? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't consider myself to be that great a guitarist. Um, I, I think I'm creative on the guitar and, and I can come up with some really good riffs, but I don't know how to play scales or solos, or I don't know what the, where I am on the fretboard or anything like that. I just uh, arrive at, you know, whenever I pick it up, I just throw my hands in and see what happens. And sometimes I'm playing a riff without even thinking about it. Where does that come from? You know, it just arrives on the guitar. And it's like, wow, I better record it quick and uh, keep
0: it going. So it just happens by pure instinct. So what's the starting point for a song for you then? It, will you have the guitar in hand and come up with a riff and then the song no, will grow out of that? Or will you be ball. like walking down the street and you'll have like a lyrical idea and then you'll put a little tune to it and then you'll think, well, the chords under that are gonna have to sound like this?
1: Yeah, that's basically it. You know, we did a tour with Bob Dylan in 1988 and I was crossing a border with him. We all got off the tour bus to go into Canada overnight. And and I stood right behind him in in the line to go meet the immigration officer in Canada. And uh, I knew it was Bob Dylan because he had his hood up, but he had his passport. And I could see over his head, Robert Zimmerman, and that was his real name, you know. And so... I'm stood there and the next minute a melody appears in my head that goes there are no frontiers we can't cross tonight there are no borderlines you know I'm standing at a border so that's what you you get you know and I, I got signed got through to Canada went back on the tour bus got the guitar up <laughs> C, G and F A minor it was all there and I, and I, I sort of think, well, where did that come from you know I, I thought I thought to myself well, that might have been coming down from the higher power I, I reckon it was probably being aimed for bob dylan but they missed and got me instead <laughs> so that uh, the 1989 alarm song no frontiers is probably a bob dylan song really but but uh, it
0: sounds more like an alarm song than a dylan song though i'll give you credit for that yeah well i think if you slow it down you know i know use
1: you know you can get the bob dylan thing going there
0: you should do like an album of like imitating the singers that you were thinking of when you wrote these songs you could (laughs) do your dylan impression and maybe some bowie on something yeah
1: some people say they do that all the time anyway
0: (laughs) for a lot of the alarm songs you and eddie mcdonald were credited with writing them together what was that process like
1: Uh, we just used to we pooled our resources really you have to be, be prepared to bear your real emotions and and your real self and uh you, you can't hide songwriting behind bravado or anything like that. It's, you know, as a songwriter or, or an ideas man, whatever it is, when you come up with these ideas for yourself, they're straight out of your imagination. There's no guarantee they're going to be any good. You know, and I've spent a lot of time, hey, that is my great new song. Well, and it falls on, everyone goes, well, it's not that good, is it? <laughs> you know, and then it's like, oh, no. And you sort of know as soon as you open your mouth if it's going to be any good or not. In, in the imagination, it's incredible. You bring it to life for one second and all of a sudden it could be the death of you. You know, it can be terrible. So Eddie was a good soundboard for me because he understood and he was caring and I was caring of him. And we we respected the creative process that it's not for everybody. You know, it takes a lot of hard work. you got to be emotionally tough to survive because I think you have to create far more moments of music that don't make it than... Than, you, than ideas that get all the way through. You know, I, I would say for every album I've ever made, I've probably written 30 or 40 songs to arrive at 10. So there's a lot of heartache along the way of realizing songs that you put your heart and soul into aren't quite good enough to make it all the way. And 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 if someone's insensitive to that and just jumps on you and tramples you underfoot because they go, that's crap, you know, or, who do you think you are? You know, or, it can be demoralizing. So Eddie and I never took a song to the full band until we played it to each other and got some confidence in it ourselves because we knew that going into the bare pit of the rest of the alarm or any other musicians in the world could be challenging especially if you if you aren't the most confident of people you know which we weren't at first you know i i was terrible playing a new song to nigel twist in the alarm terrifying because he'd, you know he'd grown up playing with carl wallinger you know you'd play him a new song his one night it's called 68 guns well what's we'll sort it all about then fucking hell you know oh it's not as good <laughs> as carl wallinger you know that's what you're up against no no i'm not disrespecting nigel because he was hearing it for the very, very second time. You know, I played it to Eddie and I go, Eddie goes, that's a great chorus, and you play it to Nigel or Dave, and Dave could be very indifferent about new songs. Oh, not another new one, you know. It's like That's just how bands wear, that's how people are. And because people don't truly understand the delicacy of that moment of creation. So Eddie was a really good sounding board for me, and I, I'm sure I was a good sounding board for him and we could gain confidence in our songs. And I'd say the one difference with me was I could actually finish a song and really write the lyrics deep and get them done. Whereas Eddie was, he'd have a bit of a scattergun of ideas, a great melody here, a great chorus there, but it it was putting it all together into the bigger picture. That was more, say, the strength I brought for him. Whereas Eddie with me, could say, well, that song's better than that one, Michael. Why don't you use that verse with the chorus of that one? That's going to be great. You know, and that's how, how we used to work really. Mm. But I wouldn't say we were really songwriters as in a pair that we sat opposite each other with a guitar and traded chords. We didn't do that. We kind of pooled our ideas into finished pieces and then, took them to the band. We, we went like our friends, you two, who would go into a rehearsal room, all as four equals and not have anything. And then someone would go, well, I've got a bass line. Do, 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 And then the, bum, 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 okay. And then the guitar, and then Bono finds a top line. And out of nothing came, it. but they, they would literally create music together, whereas we never did that in the Alarm. It was always the song first, whether it was me and Eddie bringing it into the room or Dave on his own. Dave brought Dave Sharp, brought the best alarm song ever, in my opinion. He brought a song called One Step Close to Home into the field. And when I first heard that, I was like, this is it. Well, I might as well give up. You know, I'm never going to get anything as good as that.
0: Did you wish that the alarm that they were more like you two in that sense of everyone kind of building on it because it sounds like there was a lot of kind of negativity or like concern that oh i'm going to present this and get a negative reaction as opposed to every idea is going to be embraced and worked on even if they don't love it it wasn't it
1: wasn't negative like that it was just more that we were the sensitive you know it was always difficult being taking songs into the arm because uh it just just was you know because um, it was competitive, um, everyone wanted to get their songs in. I did, Eddie did, so did Dave. You know, Nigel wanted to get in on the act as well. But we were a songwriting band, like, like, you know, I hate to say we're like them, but like the Beatles were, you know, they Ringo and George played on John Lennon and Paul McCartney's songs and made it the Beatles, and that's how the alarm was. Whether it was me and Eddie and Nigel playing on a Dave Sharp song or Dave and Nigel playing on the Mike and Eddie song, that's what made it the alarm. But we very rarely, if ever, created anything out of nothing from a a pure jam session like we two did. So Bonner wants to be like us. You know, his his aspiration is to be a songwriter. When I first met him, he was obsessed with learning to play the acoustic guitar and becoming a songwriter because he did, they just created music and it became U2 music attributed to the whole band. But they never sat down with it and, and you know, I will follow and the G and the E mark, and all that. They didn't do that. It was just, nah, 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 nah. well, what can we put over that? And Bono would bring something out, grab it out of thin air and sing and, and discover his, his voice and, and the what they were meant to be doing
0: out of thin air, and that's how they worked. You used to get compared to them a lot. The alarm did. Did you, did you like that comparison or did, did you think that was a little too easy?
1: I, I thought it was too easy. Just, we came from the same era, to be honest. And um, I suppose we had a, a similar aspect and an outlook in, in our voice and we were quite close to each other and all that, but musically we it wasn't really till I think when you two got to the Joshua tree, that's when they maybe had a little bit more that sounded like the alarm, you know, but if you, if you, listen to U2's first two albums and compare them to the alarms first two albums. We're nothing like each other at all. Right. You know? And then, and then we s- certain things about the alarm that became a bit like U2. And a lot of things about U2 became like the alarm, like harmonicas and acoustic guitars on the Joshua tree and all that sort of stuff. But we, we were all mining in the same coal mine. We were all looking for the same pop gems and the same bit of music and the same the, the music technology that was around at the time we all had access to. And uh, there, there wasn't massive revolution in sound making, you know, it all. U2's revolution was discovering the delay unit and making it the Echo Box and making it part of everything they did, you know, which was a a stroke of genius on their part. You know, look, we would never have got to America if it wasn't for U2 plucking us everywhere, inviting us on the tour, and Bono and the Edge playing our records on the radio before their shows and saying, Don't play New Year's Day, play Stand by the Alarm and come and see them. They're opening for us tonight from Wales. So if people say we're like you too, bring it on.
0: Both of your bands also they had like a a sense of we're just like going for it. We're we're not gonna, you know, we really want to spread the word and the gospel of what rock and roll can be. And
1: yeah, look, we were, I guess we were both aspirational when, you know, one things I loved about you two, when we actually went to play with them, I mean, I, in 1980, we did a tour with the stray cats and I'm not breaking any, uh, rock and roll, Secrets here when when they finished playing, it was like right, where's the party, man? You know, and uh, let's get the drugs out on the table and, and get going. You know, and uh, that was their modus operandi. And they were a classic rock and roll band like the Stones and all that. There was a lot of debauchery around it, and it made them incredible. You know, they come, they were like Elvis. You know, drugs, rock and roll. It was all part of the same thing. When when we met Bono and the Edge and u two, they were very different to anyone else we'd met. They were clean cut. They, after the show, all they wanted to do was think about the next show and, and look after their voices, look after their instruments, look after themselves as the unit. So they were ready to give everything they gave the night before, the night after. I never saw you 2 play a hangover show. Like I'd seen a lot of bands play when they'd all got so hammered the night before that they could barely stand up or just about get on stage the next night. And but my favourite band was The Clash. And I saw them in, they were like, there was no in between. They were either the best or the worst. And it was, if they were the worst, I knew they'd have too many drugs to go on stage, too much dope to, and they were half asleep, or too much cocaine and they were playing too fast. Whereas I never saw you two in that world at all. They were always representative of what you hoped you two would be every night. And, and I bought into that. Uh, that, that's what I wanted for the alarm. I didn't want us to be a drug taking band. I didn't want to be a band that abused the dressing room and all that kind of stuff. I wanted us to be prepared for night after night. I wanted to make a life out of it. And, uh, and I think that that's again, why people compared us in a way that we were, we were trying to inspire our audiences, not just, uh, you know, go out there and pose or put on an act. It was, you know, we wanted to make connections. We, we, we came from small countries and we were, lucky enough to be in a band that could tour the world and we wanted to make the most of it
0: yeah the clash uh they had their their slogan of the only band that matters and i would say that something that applies to the alarm and and you too is that you guys, you viewed your music as it matters. This well, is We're, yeah, we're, we're true yeah. believers in what you're doing.
1: I love the clash, right? But you know, they, when their manifesto as laid out in Capital Radio was, you know, we're going to start a radio station where you can call us in from the be- bed, sit room. We're going to give you um, help in life. We're going to play records you love. Well, I never saw them do that. You know, whereas you two said, we're going to try and change the world. And they did. They went out and, you know, made gigantic changes in Africa and saved lots of lives you know with the alarm we've gone out and started a cancer charity and we were able to live a bit longer than the clash maybe you know and and we could so we could learn and we could put our lofty ideas which we all shared you know the class had the clash had lofty ambitions so did you too so did the alarm and we've been able to put them in practice because we stayed off the the hard stuff, and and just got on with the real stuff, and uh, I think um, you know that that's we've been able to carve out long lives for ourselves. But you know, look, maybe we have better people around us, you know, in uh, in the long term, people who could uh, direct our energy a little bit better. I don't know. Yeah, I'm still here to tell the tales, so those Bono, and that's that's yeah. good enough.
0: And the alarm played. I mean, you guys played a lot of big venues, like with U2 and Queen and Dylan. Did playing to those big crowds. Kind of change the way you approached your music or was your music sort of already suited to you know go out to big audience at once
1: uh i, I think it was suited to it uh, in a way you know the, the songs we had could play in big rooms we knew that early on from playing uh, you know what well, we were with an agency called wasted talent they were the agents for the police and the clash and the beat and you Two and killing joke and and so when, when we were developing as in 1982, we got to play with the Boomtown Rats, then we go on tour with The Beat, then we play with Flock of Seagulls, then we go and do some gigs with you 2 then it would be, you know, we'd go and play with the Bell Stars. And we knew when we closed big stages, we, we, I could tell our music connected. I just, you just know it. You know, I could tell the songs that didn't connect as much as the, the certain ones that, you know, when we played Blaze of Glory for the first time, supporting Tapazuki in Brixton, In the heart of Black Britain, Blazer Glory went over with everybody in the room. It was incredible. And you just thought, wow, this is special. And so when we got to America and we played our first show with you two in front of 8,000 people in San Francisco Civic, we played Blazer Glory and boom, it was right there. You know, the audience played the stand. Everyone was like, this, you know, we didn't need to have a fanfare from the NME or sounds, or we could just walk on in front of. Completely unknown audience, and we would be a completely unknown band. That we we were all confident we could connect through our music without any hype or build up, and that, that's I think that's one of the reasons why we uh, made a connection in the USA before Britain to a degree. Our first ever television show was on the American Bandstand, or you know, the, our first EP five tracks was put out in America before we had anything that, that looked like an LP. And, uh, you know, even our sort of known song in the UK, 68 Guns, was only released while we were on tour in America as a bit of a stopgap. And when that charted, the DJ said, oh, they've just flown in from America. This is the alarm playing their single 68 Guns. And we went straight back to America after the TV show. When we came back a couple of weeks later and we were all over the charts, Everyone was like, "You don't sound American." I said, "We're not for real." <laughs>
0: <laughs> was it important to you to have, you know, like hit singles and you know songs that kind of, you know, everyone knew?
1: Not really. No, it, it wasn't the fame. You know, I, I, that's so such a. You know, we'd been in a band called Seventeen. On our the biggest thing we ever did was got to be with on tour with the Stray Cats, and that was our learning curve right there. That was our rock and roll education, and we got that tour by pretending to be a support band at one of their gigs at the Crystal Palace Hotel in London. We got as far as setting up our equipment on stage before somebody realised we shouldn't even be there. And the manager was about to throw us off and Slim Jim, the drummer, came and said, let them play. They've got that far. What, what What arm can 20 minutes do, you know? And then we all got on fantastically well with each other and they took us out on tour. We tried to kidnap a journalist to make him come and see us. (laughs) supporting straight because we thought if he gets early enough he'll he'll realise that we're the next greatest thing and it all went horribly wrong in this corridor in the NME in Covent Garden there's an older journalist there called Roy Carney broke up this ugly melee (laughs) shall we say and uh, and he pulled me to one side and said look Mike I, I can appreciate what you're trying to do here but this isn't the way to do it all the energy you're putting into this publicity stunt shall we call it for to, for a better word. It, the kidnapping? It's not... Kidnapping, yeah. yeah. He said, look, if you put all the energy you've put on display right now, take that and put it into your next song and let that be the vehicle that drives everyone, drags everyone to see your band instead of this ugly scene we created today. Go and put all that energy into music and see where that takes you instead. I never forgot that, and that's, that's all we ever tried to do in the alarm was put... Our best foot forward, and if it took us into the charts, great. If it didn't, it didn't matter. You know, I remember making our second album, Strength, and Roger Daltrey from the Who came to the studio because he was an alarm fan, and he said, "Look, this is great. I really like what you're doing." He said, "But what I'm interested in, what you're going to be like when it when you run out of petrol somewhere along the road, or you know, you hit a bump in the on the journey, and and it, and you you get put back into reverse." You know, he said, "That's when Pete and I, as the Who." found our true resolve when we were having to face with adversity, not when we were on top all the time. They're wise words that have been passed on from other people who've been there before me. And uh, I, I have always taken that on board. So to me, it's always about where does the music take you. Let's enjoy it. If it, if it's, I, I say to any band that comes and sees me, you know, and asks me for advice, just follow your music. I mean, it only takes you to the garage at a weekend. And as long as you're having fun, That's great. If it takes you to Wembley Stadium, then enjoy that too. But don't sweat over the other stuff because it's not
0: worth it. In the US, I remember hearing "Rain in the Summertime" and "Sold Me Down the River." Like those are pretty big radio songs here. Would Would those have been the ones you would have guessed would have been the big US radio songs?
1: Not really. No, Um, "Rain in the Summertime" was um, the last thing. You know, it was a song I'd written. It had the chords during the strength tour, we had a big bust up after the strength tour and Nigel and Dave didn't want to record any more songs written by Mike and Eddie. So it was ha- all had to be sort of group created music, you know, and, and it, it just went nowhere. It was a, it was a stupid argument over nothing, but it cost us a year out of our lives. So when we really regrouped, I had loads more songs and, and I just played, We were doing rescue me and then we were doing shelter and then we were doing you know dave brought one step closer home in which we loved and and that was that was it and then and then we were working with john porter the producer and we brought he produced smiths and we brought him in because we thought he'd get the best out of dave as a guitarist and then right at the end of the production sessions we're, we're just about to transfer from rehearsal room into the studio and he said, have you got anything that you haven't showed me or anything you haven't played? And I said, well, I've got this one cassette that says rain in the summertime. And I was trying to show the band the chords and Nigel was running a drum machine in the background and Eddie was trying to teach Dave some guitarist, but it didn't really go anywhere. So we kind of forgotten about it, to be honest. And he said, uh, and I wrote it quite a while back, you know, anyway. So uh, he said, uh, well, I'd like to hear that. So I gave him the cassette. And then about a week later, he comes down and he goes, I have been listening to that cassette. There's something in there. I've put it into my Atari computer. And he'd written this drum pattern on the, he copied the drum machine, drum part, a drum machine part, recreated that and mapped out the song. And it sounded amazing, you know, and then we got Dave to put the guitar on. And, and then I did the vote. And I, I never liked the words, I love to feel the rain in the summertime. I thought, I, I, I'll get something better for that. I never could. And John's saying, oh, my, that's beautiful. Just saying, I love to feel the rain in the summertime. It's a lovely emotion. I go, yeah, but I've got. it's got to be, I've got the faith. I've got the and And he's going, no, I love to feel the rain in the summertime. And then, bang, it's on the radio. And, and I never thought for one minute that would be a single, but there it is. I
0: mean, I think of Rain of the Summertime, and it's like, like I look at the title and I have that chorus going through my head. It's like yeah, the most yeah. indelible, beautiful chorus. And you're just like, oh yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't heard it in a while, but boom, there it is. Yeah, it's
1: almost too pretty. It's it's too major to minor chords. That's one of the things that makes it great. It's got the chords of the chorus are major in the verse, and then they become minors in the chorus. And you know, that's a, it creates a beautiful piece of music. But uh, when you create all this music, you everything is the same you know it's like having five kids you can't say that one kid's better than the other kid and it's if you've got if you bring five songs into the creative environment as as the person who's brought them in i like them all you know that's why i've brought them into the room you know it's you have to sell me which are the good ones not me i can't tell you which are the good ones that has to come from other powers
0: other beings Sold me down the river. Is that did that have a similar origin story, or did you guys think, oh no, this is this is a big single?
1: Uh, me and Eddie did. Yeah, <laughs> we did the demo on our own because uh, the rest of the band had gone home, and they, and they were supposed to come back for one more day rehearsal, and they didn't. And so we did the demo ourselves, and and then. You know, it just became the big song from the album. So uh, it was, uh, we, we knew it was good straight away. But it, I think, again, it, we were right in that thinking of Dave Ogitars had become very obsessed with the blues from about mid 1980 1984, when we were doing the Pretenders tour, we did some dates with Stevie Ray Vaughan, and he got seriously into the blues. So much so that it became quite challenging at times and we tried everything to, to sort of that's why we brought people like John Porter in to produce or Tony Visconti to produce, to get the blues out of it and back to some sort of more <laughs> modern alternative music and when, when we did Soul Me Down the River I think as, as big as, and a as great as a song as it was it sort of um, took us out of our alternative music background really and, and made us it aligned us more with uh, the Bon Jovi's of this world and Brian Adams is than no than, no. Than the Red Hot
0: Chili Peppers or something like no. that. You know, it's, it's I you would say more the- t- more more T Rex than Banjo.
1: Yeah, well, there was definitely that. You know, of course, that was our that was our pop sensibility coming through. But the the, the bluesy thing right. was something. We weren't really that known for, um, but but I think after that, it was you know that was an eight eighty nine going into nineteen. It was that was it was a, everything was changing, then the, the the younger bands like the Chili Peppers were starting to come through, and you know there the was the beginnings of of what became the Nirvana's and. Pearl Jams are all there, and and instead of saying alternative and exploring more different music paths, like we'd been known for in the early part, we became a bit more part of the mainstream of Soul Me Down the River," and um, certainly from a radio perspective, from a you know like a K Rock in LA or WNEW, you know WBCN in Boston, which were trailblazing alternative stations, we became much more like classic rock by that point.
0: Summer and beer, they're a natural pairing. That's why Revolution Brewing has brought us Sun Crusher, a juicy, refreshing summer ale. With bright citrus, lemongrass, and floral notes, the taste is lightly sweet and crisply refreshing. The name is a nod to the Chicago brewery's solar roof panels, which offset more than 50 tons of carbon dioxide every year. Sun Crusher is available wherever Revolution beer is sold. Look for the can featuring Chicago's North Avenue Beach. Go to at Rev Brew Chicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. I just wanted to make sure I talked about forwards with you because uh, it's a pretty extraordinary record and it's a powerful record musically and otherwise.
1: Well, yeah, it came from a, a sort of powerful position in life where you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to um, make it through. That, that particular episode of life, so there was a lot of challenges, at, and uh, luckily I had music to guide me through. I had my guitar in the hospital, and that was uh, that. W- that helped me really because that that gave me something to sort of focus on, other than just being isolated in a hospital. Because I, although I was on a ward with other people, there were, the pandemic protocols kept us far apart. But the music brought us together. You know, I, I only brought it in to play quietly, but more I played the that all the other inmates on the on the ward were saying play it a bit louder it's nice you know or whatever and the nurses were happy to have it as well so it became quite a nice thing.
0: So and was that you actually composing the songs for this album at the time?
1: Yeah yeah well that's it yeah it, well, I wasn't intending to do that but yeah, I, I never really sit down and write music it just always arrives somehow so you know one night I switched on the hospital radio and I heard John Lennon singing whatever gets you through the night and I was thinking to myself well never mind the night what about life how am I going to get through the rest of it and uh, and then all of a sudden you hear a melody in your head and you look at a guitar there to sort of transcribe it into some form that I could recognize when I got out of hospital as a song and uh another piece of music there was a gentleman hovering near my bed one day and and I caught his eye and he said, it's Mike Peters from The Alarm, isn't it? And I went, yeah. And he said, my father's further down the ward. I've just flown in from America to see him. And because um, he's very ill. And uh, he said, I, I was on The Alarm forums last night because I'm a massive fan. I said, hey, I'm sure Mike Peters is in here in the same ward as my dad. And I thought at that point, I knew that it was out amongst the fan base that that was in trouble. So I thought it best to write a reassuring note to kind of put them at ease and and i signed the note off with the word forwards which i've never done before and all of a sudden i thought oh wow, that's that's a that's a song that's an album that's what that's right why, that's what i'm doing here that's what it's why it's all st-. and it just sort of coalesced it into that there's a record in this situation um whether i like it or not it was happening so i thought i might as well run with it and you know i used the The situation because when you're in a hospital like that, especially in these times, you know, we're quite litigious times that doctors and nurses really only give you the facts. They don't give you any platitudes or false hopes. Say, hey, it's going to be all right. The drugs, once you get you on these new drugs, you're going to be fine. No one will say that anymore because if it doesn't work out the way it's supposed to, those things can get held against hospital, nursing, doctor staff. So um, you had to sort of generate your own hope when you're in hospital, I think. So especially because I wasn't allowed any visitors, only except my wife, one person a day for a short period of time. So um, the music became my, like I was creating my own little soundtrack of hope to lead me out of the darkness.
0: I mean, you could say that there's sort of a progression artistically where you were sort of making... Finding these universal statements out of you know sort of political situation, and now here you're finding the universal in a very personal struggle.
1: Yeah, but you know, uh, I mean, not by uh,
0: choice, obviously. But no, uh, I know.
1: But I just sort of at one point I thought maybe I've stumbled into a you know life's brought me into a a secret music mine, you know, that no one's been in before. You know, like John Lennon and George. and, and Paul McCartney they got into the the sort of pop music mind first you know got all the good tunes out of there before anyone else got there and uh you know I, I thought oh maybe I've stumbled into a little place here where maybe no one's been before and so I'm I'm calling out these songs and they're, they're being gifted to me as the, as the person in in that space and so you know it just helped me so much having uh something to focus on and yeah, I, I sort of think I'd, I was in such a bad place, I'd forgotten what it was like to feel excited about life or anything like that, because I wasn't sure if I was going to come back out. And I was, you know, at first when I was in hospital, it was looked looked pretty um, challenging and uh, you get flooded by the, the thought that maybe this is it, you know. And so having the music there allowed me to get back on top of that and that allowed me to Think about tomorrow again, think, well, when I get out, I'm going to be able to, I've got to record this song. This is a good guitar part, you know, and it gave me something to live for beyond the, the obvious ones of, you know, I want to get out for my kids and my wife and get back to right. home. And, but it, it, it reminded me that I'm still a musician as well. And I can aspire to be that as well. And maybe that's not beyond my reach at the end of all this.
0: It's harrowing stuff to face and to transform that into art. You have a song called Transition.
1: Yeah, well, I, w- I was in a, a transitional s- space because, you know, the drugs that had kept me alive for a long time, because I've been living with cancer since 1995, so the, all the drugs that had worked up to that point had stopped working, but I, my body still needed them to function and to stay alive. So it was it was almost like I had to get go through a sort of cold turkey, you know, I had to Make my body non-dependent on these drugs, and it was really difficult. And when I was coming off them, my my face changed, all my glands swelled up. I looked like the Elephant Man. Mm. And uh, and then and I had to wait and hope that the new drugs I was working towards would, would actually work. There was no guarantee. So it was it was you know I was in as I side, I didn't know which way to turn. I wasn't sure. You know and my body was craving for the old drugs. It was working to a degree, but not. They weren't going to keep me alive. So luckily I, I made it to the other side of the transition and uh, and I was able to express the joy and the energy of that. I think that comes into the record because uh, it was all recorded really fast, to be honest. We didn't hang about. It was all done. I think it was probably 12 days of record time to, to get the whole thing down with a few gaps in between while we moved to different studios. But it was all really in of the moment all my little demos that I put down to start the recording stayed so they they went forward into the process it wasn't like we wiped them and started again uh when I played the first sort of round of the songs to George Williams the producer he said you've got it here Mike this is it let's finish it let's put some real drums instead of your drum machines let's get some good vocals instead of the the one you've done when you've just come out of hospital let's you know, when you get your voice back and it's properly functioning, which I wasn't sure if that was going to happen or not, but it did. And, uh, you know, even when, once I got my voice back and it was, I, I sung that first song, I thought, right, I'm not going to stop in case I lose it again and don't get it back. So I stayed in the, in the space where I have to get to to be able to sing. And I recorded the whole album in one evening. It was all, all right there and then. So they're all, they've all filled with that same energy of, of relief as well as uh, feeling like I've, I've made it back to where I want to be.
0: Yeah. The energy level is, is really high. I mean, that song next has this just killer guitar riff. Um, <laughs> yeah. And again, you're singing lines like, you know, whatever's trying to kill me makes me feel alive. And. Uh, yeah, I
1: think, Well, that's true because I think you have to respect the enemy, you know, inside you, you know, it's to me, it's like a, a big football match or a soccer occasion where you are playing your your nearest rival and they're in the same league you know cancer's in the same league as life as being able to breathe they're they're part of they're humanly created within our DNA so sometimes I think with cancer it's there for a reason but maybe the reason's obscured or the reason has gone wrong and it and it's it's part of you that's trying to kill you and so i've learnt to, over the years to respect cancer and just see it as an opponent that i want to beat and uh, i know i'm never going to eradicate it completely but i want to win on this occasion and keep keep going forward and uh, and and look it in the eye and face it down and and because i think a lot of times it's easy to pretend it doesn't exist and and sort of a lot of people Uh, You know, I know when they're on the ward, they say to me, how come you're asking the doctor so many questions? Because I do. And they say, well, I want to know what's happening. And they go, I don't. I just want to get on with it, pretend it's not happening. And I I think, wow, that's I think it's important that you do know what's happening and you recognize it and you recognize the, the importance of the occasion that you're being having to take part in this challenge and, and to face it head on. And, you know, to defeat any opponent, you have to be able to recognize them, to work out their weaknesses, work out where they're strong, work your way around them, find out to get past the roadblock they've put in your life. So, um, you know, I, I see cancer like that as being, it is part of me, you know, because everything that, that makes you strong is also your weakness. And so, um I think it's important to recognize it and accept why it's that it's there for some sort of reason that's unknown to us or obscured to us or we're not meant to know. But it's better to keep your enemy close, as they say, isn't
0: it? Right. When you when you're out there on these nights playing these songs live in front of these audiences, I don't know, like, what what are you feeling when you're doing that? I mean, obviously when you were in hospital, I would think that that would be like sort of like your dream of like, you know, if one day I'll be able to do this and now you're able to do that.
1: Well, I feel lucky to be alive, to be honest. When I go on the stage and uh, it's something that's just happened since I was really diagnosed and uh, I I just want to play the music. So I don't talk. I walk out on the stage. I'm strumming my guitars. I walk onto the stage because I want to play as much music as I can in the night. And I think if I talk for a minute between every song and I play, say say if I play 10 songs in the first 45, 50 minute set, if I talk for a minute in between songs, that's 10 minutes of music I've taken out of the night. So I, I don't talk. I just go from one song to the next bang, bang, bang. And then, you know, I'll be back in 20 minutes, recharge and reload, come back. I walk on playing the next set. I'm playing it as I walk onto the stage. And I say goodnight at the end of the night. So I'm not filling up the space with the sound of me yapping away. It's, hmm. I just want it to be filled with all the time, filled with music. And that's just something that felt right instinctively. And I'm enjoying that as well. The hard part of being a band, any band will tell this, probably talking in between songs. It's so... It's a difficult thing to do and to get right because when you're on stage, the gaps between songs, two seconds feels like two minutes when you're on stage and, and time sort of slows down. And sometimes you can be listening back to a live tape of a gig. You don't think oh, I'm really messed up there. And it was, and you can't even hear it anymore. When when you go back and listen to something you thought was a monumental mistake, right. you can't even hear it.
0: <laughs> is playing music on stage is that your happy place? Is like like is that where you're?
1: Yeah, your look, I've, got, I'm, I'm, I've got I've got a of happy places. I make the most of things, you know. I like climbing in the mountains and walking and hiking. You know, I, lo- I love being at home and, and family. I, I like playing records on a friday night after the week and you know i'm i'm happy in a lot of places i i love where i live you know i bought my house i live 500 yards away from where i was born i've lived there all my life you know i always thought this is life's been good to me put me in a great place from the moment i was born so i'm very uh, very happy with with all that and you know probably maybe that comes out in the music i don't know but i'm very content I don't ask for a lot. I'm I'm quite happy with the simple things in life in a village called Dizzeth. It's got beautiful waterfalls and we've got a chapel there that we we use as our creative hub and we have it as apartments. People come and stay. We've got a music venue next door and a coffee shop and we're really in, in the hub of it all. And it's really good to be part of a community that you feel connected to.
0: Have you still been writing more songs since you finished this album? Does more stuff come to you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've been playing a few things on sound checks. So I keep thinking, I need to make another album quick because I, I almost, this one was over before I'd even thought about it. And it's like, oh no, I didn't have time to really enjoy that because it was so quick.
0: <laughs> so uh, I've
1: started to make a new one already,
0: I think. How are you feeling in general?
1: I feel good. You know, I'm still, it's still, I'm still uncertain about certain things, but I'm playing these shows. That, that this is my, this will be my fourth show on the run tonight. So uh, I'll I'll see how I survive that, but I'm feeling confident I can go out and play and do and do a tour in the near future rather rather than select dates and uh, and fire up the band in earnest and take the band out on the road and run around the stage and sing and uh, yeah I'm confident now. So there's uh, lots of conversations about bringing the band back to America in 2024, or if not before, in Europe. and Europe. Yes. You know, we've got a big show coming up, The Cult, in July. I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, so life's good.
0: Do people reach out and tell you that you've been, you know, inspirational to them?
1: Uh, they do, yeah, yeah, I have to say, yeah, yeah. I love hearing that. I love it that they're the real accolades, you know. Forget, you know, the big awards that you get for this and that. You know, when someone comes along to you and says, hey, your song changed my life or I had it played at my wedding or, you know, it's important that to be connected to people in that way if you if you make music because it's it's a difficult thing to do. So it shouldn't be, it's not something you can take for granted, I don't think.
0: Making music that's powerful, but also joyful, that's a tricky combination and and you're pulling that off. And so my, my hat's right. off to you for that. I just think that, <laughs> that, that, you know, it's like a lot of times these people have been around, you're like, oh, it's their new album, whatever, and you're like, but I'm listening to this and I'm just like, it sounds like, the same guy it's the alarm doing that but it has this power again transforming your experience and just digging deep into these feelings and it's like it's what music to me is meant to do so that's, that's- it
1: exactly. that's it you know i, I like it to play in, when i play back in the audience they're starting singing back all the new songs affords to me now and i think that's 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 the that's what's really good you know when you see people who know the lyrics already because they've been on, obviously worked out all the lyrics and they sing along. And then it, to me, that's when it's really alive, when it's that interaction happens. And uh, it's, it's great to be part of that, you know, just to make that connection is, is, and feel it. And and it becomes tangible at a concert, isn't it? That's when the emotions become tangible because they're being voiced from both sides of the relationship from me and from the audience on the other side. And then it, it becomes warm then.
0: Do you still get wrapped up in like, you know, the numbers and the sales and all that, or is it just, you know, No, I'm so glad I hate that. I,
1: can't. I, I don't like that. I used to like in the eighties music was much more uh, mysterious that, you know, you didn't know how many tickets had sold for a gig because people had no way of really counting them till after the show, you know, you'd be at the show and the promoter said, Oh, he said, oh, "How many tickets we done tonight?" And they go, oh, "Well, we don't know, really. We haven't had them in from the record shop or the box office yet. You know, we'll have to count them up, and and then we don't know what. You know, and Pete, there was a lot. It was the era of people, you know, either wrote in through the mail to get tickets, or or just turned up at the box office on the night. Now, it, with it all digital, everyone's got the numbers at their fingertips, and." You can go on any band or any venue website and you can see the seating plan. You can see how many tickets. And sometimes think that can put somebody, if it doesn't look great, it can put somebody off going because, they, oh, it's going to be, it's not going to be full tonight. I'm not going to go. Whereas in the, in the 80s, you have no idea. So you just went along and made the most of what it was. And so I, I don't like the numbers because they, they sometimes, uh, Take the mystery away from from the the from the occasion, and even when when we were with IRS Records in the eighties, and you know, Declaration was out, and it was in, you know, it was heading towards the top forty, and uh, and there were slow burner chart run, runs then, and you'd have one week and say, hey, we've only gone up from forty seven to forty five, but um, the, the the old Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon is at right. forty four. So that doesn't need promoting. So we'll, we'll billboard would say we'll flip you. We'll put you at forty-four. So it looks like you've gone up three places, and we'll put Dark Side the Moon down. You could one. You can never do that now. But it, but it, may, it gave you a better opportunity to promote yourself. The the agents and the promoters could say, hey, we've we've gone up three places this week instead of two. So you know can you play the record a bit more? And, and it would help grow the band. It would get you to your third and fourth album. Whereas today that doesn't happen. We go on Spotify. You can see how many streams a band has had and all that stuff. And you know, if it's happening or not and you see how many followers they've got on Facebook. And it's, it's uh, it, it doesn't help. I don't think I don't, I don't the numbers help. So I, I just want to stay away from all that. And to me, music has always been an instinctive thing. You either like it or not, but there's so many, Records are judged by the statistics now. And, and you think, wow, if we were going on statistics, we wouldn't have got into Hunky Dory by David Bowie. We'd have never discovered the Stooges or the Velvet Underground, uh, bands that never sold any records when they first came out. And uh, whereas I think now it's, uh, it'd be better to be like that where you just discovered things and you had to find out whether they were big or not by going to a gig and seeing the band live thinking, wow, these fans know all the songs or, you know, you discover it. And now there's no, no opportunity to really discover music. It's just there. When I first got into music, I used to take a chance on buying records. I used to take a chance on going to see a concert. You know, you couldn't just like dial it up on YouTube and see what was happening or find out what the set list was before you went. And I I think sometimes that all that doesn't help bands it doesn't help music in general it's just demystifying it all the time and I think the mystery is a big part of what attracts us to it if it was so clear-cut we wouldn't be anywhere near music but it's all it is a mystery to it that's why we do interviews and we ask the eternal questions because we're still fascinated by it and I think that fascination with music needs to be nurtured but the industry stripped all that away and, and makes it a very naked thing and it's it's not always the best it's a bit ugly when it gets down to talking about fit figures and facts and numbers and right. ticket sales and album sales it, it's to me that's ugly that's not that's not what music is really all about it's a much more beautiful experience and than statistics
0: it's great talking to you great listening to. Great, Mark, you. i'm really glad i got to hear you in la i hope i get to hear you over here again soon i can't wait to hear what's next so to speak yeah, as you move forwards too. but thank you so much and and i can't wait to hear what else you do brilliant thank you that's it for episode 91 of carol pop thanks so much to mike peters for opening up about his career with the alarm and his ability to create inspiring music from the toughest of circumstances the new Alarm album, Forwards, has gotten great reviews for a reason. It's available in all physical and digital formats, and you should check it out. Go to TheAlarm.com for more information. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Wake, who'd never sell you down the river. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, at Carole Popcast. You can follow me as well, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit CarolPop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address, so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Episodes. Tickets are on sale now for my July 31st on-stage carol pop conversation with actor, singer, director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to EvanstonSpace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another carol pop conversation. Thanks.